You're listening to the So What Podcast. The atonement is so big and glorious that there isn't one perspective on it given in the Bible. We have redemption and reconciliation and propitiation and expiation and atonement, and they are not just synonyms. There's a temptation to bend them to fit the system as opposed to let them speak on their own terms and say, perhaps there's space here to leave the conversation open. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On the second of a two-part episode, the crew discusses Pelagius and Pelagianism. Before we head over to that discussion again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy this show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. And questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for SoWhat Podcast. Well, let's continue our discussion on Pelagianism. So before we look more closely at Romans chapter 5, which is really the linchpin, at least in the New Testament, for this doctrine of original sin, I think it would be helpful to give a brief overview of the period between Augustine and Paul's letter to the Romans and where you see the development of this doctrine. It doesn't just drop in the 5th century in Augustine's writings, but at the same time, it's not as fully developed either Mm -hmm. until his time. So... The scriptural foundation is the Pauline teaching through one man sin entered the world and by the trespass of one man, the many died uh, from Romans 5 and we'll talk about that. Uh, But at least as it's discussed in the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, the significance of this doctrine was obscured by some preoccupations in the age of the fathers and apologists, so the first few centuries of the Christian Church who are struggling against Gnosticism and dualist systems of heretics and Manichaeism is one of those which comes into play and provides a concern for people like Pelagius that we don't want to dip too far in a dualist direction because that is a heresy that the church has condemned. So you have an Irenaeus, he he defends the teaching that evil came into the world through the sin of Adam. Origen has a conception of man's fallen state, but in him it is bound up with speculations on the prenatal sins of souls. So that's clearly something different and aberrant to Christian orthodoxy. Athanasius, we've talked about him regarding Arius and Christology in his treaty on the Incarnation, anticipates later developments of the teaching that the chief result of the sin of Adam, which consisted in the abuse of his liberty, was the loss of the grace of conformity to the image of God, by which he and his descendants were reduced to their natural condition and became subject to corruption and death. 
So you see the seed form of it, but it's not fully developed yet. And so I'm right. just giving some various views that, you know, Pelagius isn't necessarily when he sets out, out of touch with, you know, Christendom necessarily. But clearly the direction he goes is is justly condemned as heresy. So one of the issues with a lot of heresies is they sort of set out, you know, attempting to do something helpful, but are unable to sort of bring themselves into submission to the communal discernment of the, of the church. Yeah. And then things get out of hand, which is where we are with Pelagianism. So we can be sympathetic yet. Yeah. We want to offer a charitable reading, but at the end of the day, this is a big problem. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It is. So the Romans five, um, that there's, there's some key ideas that show up in terms of the question of sin and the relation of the human race to Adam uh, and how Jesus comes along and deals with the problems that uh, are engendered as a result of that. So just to read a bit to get it to orient us, in Romans 5.12, uh, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law, yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. So for Paul, Adam is crucial in that he brings the world into a state of curse, sin, and death. So sort of take sin, the resulting condemnation that is death. Those, those are in one category. That's a problem, obviously, because Adam represents enmity with God after the fall. Um, it's helpful to understand that for Paul, his understanding of Adam and his understanding of Christ depend on this concept of representative covenant heads. And one of the ways, I, well, an illustration for that uh, that I often try to help people understand it, because we don't, we struggle with that. We're very individualistic. In Paul's world, they were very collect, they had more collective identity. So you're, you sort of derive your identity from the group that you're in mm -hmm. and that your status and all those kinds of things. We have aspects of that in our culture, but it's a little bit harder to pick up on. F one way that's helpful to think about it is we're in the middle of football season. Uh, so if you've been to a football game, you've been there early enough to watch the coin toss. The captains go to the center of the field. Referee flips the coin, and the captains call heads or tails. And when they make the call, the call that they make they do it. They they make that on behalf of the entire team. That's but right. that's not fair because I wanted tails. Yeah, well, and the captain shows heads. It doesn't well, matter. You you've got the jersey on, so <laughs> you're on team so, Adam. I just so want to be my captain, own captain. Yeah. I want to captain my own ship. There you have it. So when the kept when the captain calls the toss, he calls the toss for the team. Mm -hmm. And if he picks the north end zone and the team doesn't head off to the south end zone, and if he opts to receive, then the kicking team doesn't come on, the receiving team does, right? So that action that the captain of the team takes is reckoned to everyone who's wearing the same jersey that, he, that the captain has on. Similarly, uh, when Adam sins, he calls the toss for the human race, right? And when Jesus dies and is raised, he calls the toss, for those who belong to him. Um, so Adam represents fallen humanity. Jesus represents redeemed humanity. Our problem is that we need a new representative. We come into the world being represented by Adam, and we need a new representative. Jesus functions in that way for us. So, And it's significant in 1 Corinthians 15, then, that Paul describes Jesus as the last Adam. Yes, yeah, yeah. The second Adam, but the right. last Adam. So for Paul... He's a binary thinker on this. Everyone in the world is in one of these two groups. Um, 
everyone starts out in Adam, and Paul would include himself in that group. And in order to be rescued, uh, which it, your sort of your default human position is in Adam, and that means that you are under the curse of sin, you are at enmity with God, um, you stand justly under God's condemnation, and you will die. Um, and you'll die. Exactly. So you need a new representative. You need a new covenant head. Jesus comes and he provides justification from the, the, the just condemnation of sin. He provides forgiveness for sin. He provides right standing before God in the form of his, his righteousness. And he provides resurrection from the dead to deal with the curse of sin that is death. So our problem is that we're in Adam and the solution, the saving work of Jesus, is the transfer. And that transfer happens by God's grace through faith. So Paul can say everyone is in Adam, and death and curse and sin come into the world through Adam. Jesus comes and provides righteousness and life where Adam brought condemnation and death. Just to be clear, and I'll say this because my supervisor mentioned this to me, it's the last Adam and the second man, not the second Adam. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I think that's important. It is important. It's important no, no, it because is important. if you say the second Adam, that implies yeah, yeah. a third, a fourth, a fifth, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right. No, that's no, a very key. important distinction. He is the eschatological Adam. That's correct. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. And that's all no, there is that's to it. That's a great and that point. That distinction to make. is made, and he doesn't mix those around. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah, and, and and it's interesting. In verse fifteen, Paul says it's a free gift. This this work that Jesus has done in providing salvation, justification, resurrection, life. This isn't something that he makes available, and then requires us to sort of do our part to get in on it. Um, but it's a free gift, a work of God's grace through faith that we're saved and made alive together with Christ by the work of His Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so it follows that one is free to accept it or reject it, right? Good no? question. Okay. So <laughs> St. Pelagius makes an appearance. So <laughs> there is a link, when you, and we haven't talked much about predestination yet, but there's a connection between the doctrines of original sin and total depravity as it's developed in the Reformed tradition, but predestination as being required for salvation then, and this is strongly felt throughout Augustine, which is, if I am an Adam and subject to corruption and death, and I cannot, through my own effort or strivings after righteousness, transfer myself from Adam to Christ, then to what extent, and it would appear for Augustine entirely, the entire extent, I'm dependent upon divine grace or God's initiative, which he talks about under the rubric of predestination, to deliver me from sin and death and transfer me into the kingdom of God's righteousness. So, um, so let's run that chronologically. Kyle, mm. talk to us about Calvin's appropriation of Augustine, and then I'll come back and say a word about Wesley's. So Calvin would say election comes first, first and foremost in eternity past, and then comes your predestination after your election. So this is even before anybody exists. Then... When an individual is born, lives a life unregenerate as an unbeliever, they're called, and then there is regeneration that comes from that calling. This is 100% a monergistic work of the Holy Spirit through God's grace. Mm-hmm. What's monergistic mean? Monergistic means as only God. There's no synergism. One energy. One energy. One That's work. right. Yep. After this regeneration comes faith, 
repentance, justification, sanctification, yeah. and so on. And so that that beginning part is where there would have been a distinction. Right. So I think so when we're taking taking that with the question of original sin, original sin, everyone sort of again comes into the world in the state of enmity with God. Right. And God calls a certain number of individuals mm-hmm. and effects their regeneration, which deals with the consequences of original sin. Right. So a lot of times, and it's helpful to kind of have some folks who sort of sit on different spectrums. You know, one of the great things about this podcast is we've got sort of a, a range of folks who are mm-hmm. all Protestant, yet we uh, cover the spectrum of Protestantism in some ways. Arminius and Wesley, who are sometimes falsely maligned as rejecting original sin and being semi-Pelagian at best and fully Pelagian at worst. And I would, as a Methodist clergy person and I would reject that wholeheartedly as a as a, a thoroughly incorrect reading of Wesley, especially in Arminius as well. Um, I'll support you in that. Thank you. And 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 so solidarity. Wesley actually said in his sermon on sermon on original sin, if I'm if I remember correctly, that to reject the doctrine of original sin, just to make this clear, um, to, Wesley said if you reject original sin, you are a heathen still, right? So for him, this is a this is a, a make or break your your Christianity kind of doctrine. Yep. It, it, for for Wesley to reject original sin is to so profoundly misunderstand the work of Christ that one is not one cannot have faith in him <laughs> to save them from sin. So so Wesley for Wesley this is a without which there is none kind of doctrine, right? And then in his uh, treatise on original sin he says this uh, having no knowledge of God we can have no love for God. So talking about people in their natural state. We cannot love someone we do not know. Most people talk about loving God and perhaps think they do love him. But the fact is too plain to deny. No one loves God naturally, says Wesley, any more than he loves a rock or the earth he walks on. What we love, we enjoy. But no one has any natural enjoyment of God. In an unconverted state, you cannot even understand how anyone could enjoy God. You do not like him at all. You never even think about him very much. To love God, that is far above, out of your sight. You cannot reach the place of loving God. So Wesley is not optimistic about human beings in their natural, unconverted state, being able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, being able to somehow follow Jesus without, you know, in the natural state. He unquestionably affirms the doctrine of original sin, and he un- is unquestionably opposes anyone who would, would undermine it. He disagrees with Calvin on how God deals with that. Right. Yeah. So, so, so. So we need Arminius, to talk about prevenient grace. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Arminius and Wesley would, would, instead of saying that God has elected a certain number of people, they would both say that the first dec- divine decree is not who's elect, but, but how God will save right. the elect. Right. And so that for, for Arminius and Wesley, the, the first decree, the divine decree is, God will save those who believe in Jesus. And so when the gospel is preached, and this is one where Wesley, I think, goes back and forth a bit, and one place where I would want to push, I would want to push back against some of the things he says about the scope of provenient grace. As best I understand it, and Arminius, and, and Wesley broadens this to some degree, when the gospel is preached, right, Paul shows up uh, in Thessalonica or somewhere and starts preaching the gospel people find out and find themselves believing it and he says that means the Holy Spirit's at work convicting you of sin and working powerfully in your life mm-hmm. right so the preaching of the gospel functions as God's 
grace that comes before salvation. Provenient just means, it's from a Latin word that means to come before. So the grace that precedes justification. God works through the preaching of the gospel to convict you of sin and draw you to himself and to free you from the effects of original sin, namely that your will is in bondage, right? So the preaching of the gospel throws open the door of the prison cell. Um, It breaks the chains and calls upon you to respond to that. So here's the thing for Wesley, and this is kind of, this is key. This is why he's not semi-Pelagian. God always initiates. For, for Arminius and must. and must, yeah, there. For for Arminius and Wesley, both human beings are thoroughly, completely, and unquestionably incapable of initiating a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. God must initiate, and where they differ with Calvin is that they would disagree that he does not effect the response. Correct. Yeah, I would. I would want to hear. You know, coming from the opposite angle from what you've just described. You know, that that obviously uh, brings up the question of the level of cooperation. And is that is that how you would are we cooperating with the provenient grace of God given through the gospel? Um, we, I would say are, we are responding to it. We're responding. Yeah. So do you do you often hear the charge of that, that? you know, human beings are left to cooperate. Wesleyans, and in particular, and Arminians more broadly, and there are some folks who call themselves Arminians that I think get this wrong and are pretty much Pelagian. And I would want to say they're not classical Arminians and they do not stand in the, really in the tradition of Arminius. If you read Arminius' stuff, he's thoroughly reformed. And and he was never excommunicated from the Dutch Reformed Church, to my knowledge. I mean, I think he died a member of the clergy in good standing in the Dutch Reformed Church. I think, I mean, the I'm not, change that he I'm not sure. In the... I think, I mean, I've, it was, I mean, the whole remonstrant controversy happened after I think he was dead. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, Senator I mean, Dort and everything, that's down it, the line. And obviously, you know, his followers, just like the Calvinists versus Calvin, you know, they developed theology mm-hmm. yeah. along trajectories that maybe he intended, maybe they, yeah. maybe yeah. he did. So, right. so there's a difference between Arminius and some of the remonstrants. The, the thing is, when Arminius was alive, and, and he was questioned about these things during his life, he, you know, if you read his stuff, he sounds deeply reformed. <laughs> um, he's not sort of this sort of out of left field Pelagian guy. And, you know, I've read through a, a number of his defenses. And, I mean, he's very much, very much interested in the divine decrees and how these things work and the preeminence of grace. But the, yeah. to get back to your question, Brad, for Arminius and Wesley, Roger Olson puts it this way. Um, he's very helpful. He's Baptist theologian, church historian. He wants to say that for a classical Arminian, we do not affirm that human beings come into the world with free will, right? Wesley, Arminius would agree with Luther that we come into the world with our wills in bondage to sin, right? Paul, right there, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. And that's what Wesley's saying when he says we don't have the ability to love, we'd rather love a rock than God, Wesley says. We don't, he sounds, he sounds almost like John Piper when he says you can't enjoy it. Yeah, you know, he really he does. So yeah. John, yeah. You know, so, so, you know, that, that's where Wesley is. And, John Piper and sounds like Wesley. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for that. I, I needed that. I deserve that. Someone let Piper know that <laughs> yeah. he sounds like Wesley. I think that's the headline under yeah, yeah, Desiring yeah. God's Turns website. Out. I think that's their tagline. Like yeah. Wesley. Enjoying God. The modern Wesleyan, John, John Wesley's Piper. Wesley's enjoying God ministries, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, um, so, but, but to get back to the point, right, so. But then moving on to the provenient grace question. Provenient grace frees our will to respond positively or negatively 
it's like a the soft regeneration is how i hear it yeah well i i know i would i wouldn't i wouldn't <laughs> even call it regeneration um but there's a sense in which it's regenerating uh will yeah, it's uh, well it, what what you're doing though you're but not delivering it to yeah. conversion yeah so one of the, the way one of the challenges with enabling the, it to then make a decision yeah one to of the, believe or not believe. one of the difficulties with the ordo salutis is that it mixes metaphors right justification is a legal term regeneration is a more birth you know biological biological term, term. and how do you it, it's 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 you know and when those terms show up in the new testament we have to understand that they're drawing on this figurative language to help us understand this thing. And they aren't, and the New Testament authors aren't worried about mixing that around and talking about yes. it that way. But when we go and sort of write a systematic theology and say, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and, you know, the error is participle means that this comes before that. And, well, okay, we can talk about that. But at one level, you have to remember you are mixing metaphors. And when, when, when you talk about birthing language and biological language, well, before a baby takes its first breath outside the womb, it's in development for nine months, right? Um, and so I'm comfortable when I'm talking about regeneration. There is a moment where you take your first breath outside the womb, um, but that doesn't mean God isn't working life in you prior to that. Uh, yeah. And the gospel, the gospel is God working life in us, and provenient grace is God working life in us, but that does not ensure our final resurrection from the dead at that point. Um, that is not to add to the work of Christ, uh, it, and it's not to detract from the work of Christ. Um, if I'm raised from the dead when Jesus comes back, it will only be because God is gracious, mm -hmm. not because I've been a particularly yeah. swell guy and I believed really hard. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's important to understand. But the, the key thing with the Pelagian question is, for Wesley and Arminius, neither of them believe that you can initiate a relationship with right. God. Right. Yeah. And so here we've, we've dug... Very, yeah. very, very deep into yeah. the question, and basically, what I what I hope listeners hear is that the distinction between the Wesleyan tradition and the Reformed tradition is very much an in-house debate. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Right, right. Arminius and Calvin and Luther and Wesley, it's an in-house debate. Right. So the, the question fact, that I was just going to say, I don't, I don't think it's a Wesley hymn. I don't think Charles Wesley wrote it, but I, I would bet you guys sing Rock of Ages, Clef for me. Happily. Yeah, just like we do. And there's that beautiful line in there, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You know, that, that you, what you're saying is you don't really contribute anything to salvation in the same way we'd say it, because we have nothing to contribute. Um, it's all of God. Yeah, I think so. Um, I've also, just since we're talking hymn, hymnody, um, there is, a, you know, the Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And I hear Calvinists all the time, appeal to the line where he says thine eye diffused yeah, a quickening yeah. ray long my imprisoned <laughs> spirit lay this is charles wesley long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye diffused a quickening ray i woke the dungeon flamed with light my chains fell off my heart was free i rose went forth and followed thee i heard timothy george say one time in auburn alabama how can you say that and not be a calvinist and my answer is well remember the bit about i rose went forth and followed thee right the door can be blown off the cell and you can stay in it. And that, I mean, that would be the Wesleyan response is you can make your bed in the prison house of sin, even after Jesus blows the door off of the cell. So let me, let me bring Calvin in, um, just to, to have the other perspective of this very in-house yeah. debate. 
Romans 9.16. So then it depends not on human will. <laughs> you had to will. go there, man. <laughs> well, well I, you'll, you'll, be ha- you'll be happy. Right? Come on, I, bring I think, it. I think, go. we're going to a, I think we're going to a, a nice destination. Right. I think you'll be happy. Better land it soon. Uh, because John I, Calvin. I'm sorry. No one has ever quoted from Romans 9 before and then followed it up with this caveat. Nice I think you're going to be happy. <laughs> I think you'll like this. <laughs> <laughs> Romans 9, I don't you're going to love will, this. I think this will settle all difficulties. So. Uh, no, no, no. I, I don't think I'm going to settle no, any difficulties. Go ahead. I'm just going to be as charitable happy. as possible. All right, so <laughs> here is Romans nine sixteen. So then it, it being what? Our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, Calvin, when commenting on this passage, says something, and this is what I was getting at, that I think you would find pleasant. He says this, he makes this favor common to all mm-hmm. because it is propounded to all and not because it is in reality extended to all, right? Mm. So this is true of all of humanity, but it's not extended to all of humanity. He continues, for though Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world, right? His, his sacrifice is sufficient to save all and is offered through God's benignity indiscriminately to all. Here's the caveat. Yet, all do not receive him. He uses the word I would, receive. I'm, I'm happy with that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So so here Calvin is saying, commenting on this very controversial yeah. verse, right? Yeah. He's saying that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to save yeah. all. It was not efficient to save all because why? Not all receive yeah. him. Yeah. And so then the distinction, I think, would come in, well, what does it mean to receive him? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think the scriptures tell us very clear that there is an effectual calling right Mm -hmm. both of us would agree on that the distinction then would would come into play when the effectual call is placed on a believer's life they have the option to receive it or reject it from the wesleyan view the wesleys wouldn't use language effectual call. effectual so i'm using you know uh i'm borrowing i'm I'm looking at my my dictionary right yeah so there would be the prevenient prevenient grace comes they have the option then to accept or receive it yeah calvin would say no they don't they don't don't have the option to reject it they only have the option to receive it because what they see is beauty and glory in christ and this wooing is not so much a wooing as it is a pulling up of water out of a well Mm -hmm. uh and and you know as we see uh in in conversion experiences such as paul's this is something that god's like it's gonna happen I think these things are beautifully and mysteriously woven together all throughout the Bible. John and his prologue, it's, so it is biblical to speak of receiving Christ. Um, but listen to the... Uh, he gave the, them the power to become sons of God. Listen to the, the way that they're interwoven in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I wanted to make a couple points. One is that uh, there is room to interpret these things differently. Right. In a way that does not place one or the other interpretation outside the bounds of either yeah, the teachings of scripture that. That is or um, Christian communion. Yes. The atonement is so big and glorious that there isn't one perspective on it given in the Bible. So we need a multiplicity of metaphor. We need a multiplicity of perspectives. We have redemption and reconciliation and propitiation and expiation and atonement. And they are not just synonyms. 
they all get at something different. Regeneration, as Matt brought up earlier, gives us a different picture than um, what was than the legal language. Oh, yeah, than justification. justification right. um, but you need both to have a, a so we want a fully understanding of salvation. Understanding right? of yeah. salvation, yes, and so. The problem with... And those aren't the only two metaphor groups. <laughs> the systematizing impulse is to collect everything under these categories, yeah. and you always have outliers. And so what do you do with those? Um, well, there's a temptation to bend them mm -hmm. to fit the system for yeah. the sake of hygiene, as opposed <laughs> to let them speak on their own yeah. terms and say... Perhaps there's space here to yeah. leave the conversation open I've, or not foreclose interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I have sort of over the in recent years grown more comfortable with some of the tensions that arise. And yeah. I've just learned, I just have to learn to live with the tension yeah. that arises at time. Uh, I think, and I think any good, any good Calvinist is going to say the same thing. Yes, they because should. Because there are stunning, ten, at, at, at best there are tensions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and 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 I and we could do maybe we should do an episode one day on the ten, on the tensions that we all sort of you know things that we struggle with in mm -hmm. our own account of, of of the faith. But let me maybe and this is a way to wrap it up, sort of tagging off what what Travis just said is one of the things I love about this podcast is um, you know we've got a fellow with Anglican sensibilities, a fellow with Reformed Baptist uh, heritage, and a fellow with United you know and Brad with the Baptist background, a couple of Baptists. Someone with Anglican sensibilities and me with sort of Methodist tracing Wesley back to his Anglicanism, that we have a a, a range of the Protestant tradition mm -hmm. around the table, and by and large we agree on most things. Ninety nine. And I would imagine yeah. that anyone who listens, if if anyone's listened to more than one of these, they would have to agree uh, agree with that. And here we are, well into this a year or so, and we're having this sort of debate. Um, but it's an it is an in-house thing and it and it matters you know in John 1 are you going to start with verse the verse where he talks about gives them the power to become or are you going to start with by the will of God mm -hmm. you know and so there's that tension and you know one person might start with one and I might start with the other and read through the the lens there but at the end of the day we all sit around the table we all worship the same Jesus and it's good I agree and on the heels of that so when you're talking about different strands of Protestantism, even outside of Protestantism, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, we all agree on this one point about original sin, at least. So rounding back to Pelagius and asking the so what question, what's the big deal? Like, why, why is Orthodox Christianity, lowercase o, universal Christianity, so hung up on this one issue? And why, over everything we disagree about, for in-house debates, have we decided this is this separates you from the family, so to speak? Yeah, I don't want it to be missed by listeners that what we've been discussing in a protracted way is what is the significance of original sin? How is the original original meaning first in this case in the human in human history? How is the uh, first act of disobedience in the primordial garden by Adam and Eve? transmitted to or its effects passed on to humanity and clearly there's something wrong with the world clearly there's a brokenness that we all battle in our own lives and hearts and that we see reflected in society and so what are some theological ways and biblical ways of unpacking that and we we try and 
approach things somewhat sympathetically, and so earlier I was trying to give a trace of how this doctrine developed in significance from the letter to the Romans in the time of the New Testament through to Augustine in the early 5th century, and where you really get this developed dogma of original sin that becomes definitive in church history from that, from that time after. But it was certainly not without its seed or developing form prior to Augustine, as we see these, you know, in the contingencies of history, these events and ideas develop and are connected. And once they are developed, they are seen to be not in addition to Scripture or something that just needs to be superimposed on the text, but actually present there in Romans 5 all along. But as we try and sympathetically view a lot of heretics, which is what they were and what Pelagius was, I don't want it to be missed that this after his lifetime, this didn't just remain an open question in the church where now one, if they are to be a Christian, is free to decide, well, what do I think? Do I think I need grace yeah. to be saved? Or do I think it's possible to attain you know, righteousness just based solely on my own effort? Well, that's not an open question right. in the church anymore. So it was condemned by multiple councils in the 5th and 6th century. And by the time in the Middle Ages, this doctrine is firmly entrenched. Everyone's dealing with it trying to then talk about how it's, you know, what's the extent of it? What's the scope of it? Like we had in this conversation of post-Reformation and Wesleyan tradition and Calvinistic mm-hmm. tradition and uh, Anglican tradition, how is this this doctrine viewed? So I just want to say that it's not an area where one is free to explore if one is going to maintain faithfulness to the Christian tradition, whether or not it's valid that there are in, any enduring effects to the fall. Yeah. Um, there obviously are, and so then the discussion is to what extent are they active? How much of divine initiative is required, and what does that look like if a person is going to be transferred from their fate of death in Adam to enjoying salvation in Christ or life in Christ? Yeah. You mentioned earlier um, Augustine believed this to be a gospel issue, and it is. There is yeah, no gospel absolutely. that is a graceless gospel. Yeah. It's saturated with grace, and this is the complete opposite direction that every New Testament writer that writes on the gospel goes in. Yeah, And it, it is rightly condemned as being outside of the Christian faith, which is why I think you see it so prominently in other religions. Yeah. If you heard a thoroughgoing Pelagian presentation of the gospel message, it wouldn't be recognizable as Christian. So what? To ask the question again, why not adopt Pelagianism as your view of humanity? As it denies the biblical doctrine of original sin, so it denies the necessary work of Jesus Christ on the cross in his death, burial, and in his resurrection. Pelagianism diminishes the absolute role of God's grace in the life of a non-believer to transfer them from the death of the first Adam to the life of the last Adam, as described in Romans chapter 5. And despite the differences within Christianity on the exact mechanics of this transfer, no one denies that God is the initiator and dispenser of grace that is necessary to overcome our sin nature in order to experience regeneration. Well, we hope you join us next time as we continue our series on the gospel according to the heretics.